Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Creative Live, the world's best online classroom for creative professionals, with classes on songwriting, engineering, mixing, and mastering. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is also brought to you by Ernie Ball, the world's premier manufacturer of guitar strings, bass strings, and guitar accessories. And now your hosts, Joey Sturges, Joel Wanasek, and Al Levy. Welcome to another episode of the Joey Sturges Forum Podcast. Today we have a really cool guy who plays guitar because it's guitar month and is this another swedish person yeah what do you know what a surprise they're good at music i like swedish people yeah man you guys know what i think i think there's something in the water <laughs> so we got what tips and tricks today yep with mr per nelson who in my opinion is like the swedish jeff loomis one of the best lead guitar players to exist from the you know 2000 to current era um he's from the band scar symmetry and it's just ridiculous so if we're talking about a crazy lead guitarist there is a lot of discussion online and i i know you can comment on this joel it's like a battle between noodling and wankery versus <laughs> actual education. This was my life for like 10 years. <laughs> uh, or like educated content, you know? Okay, well, here's the thing with like guitar. Mind my, mind my rant because now you just opened Pandora's fucking box. <laughs> I'm a shredder, right? I was born and raised a shredder. As soon as I picked up a guitar, I wanted to be as technical as possible. Um, a lot of people don't understand shred and they're just like, oh, you're just jacking off and moving your fingers fast. And you're like, no, 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 dude. It took like years of 12 hours a day of concise, concerned effort to be able to play that fucking lick. But you wouldn't understand because you can't even fucking play faster than 10 BPM. So a lot of people just like the hammer on shred. But at the same time, um, like anything, it's a style. Just like, you know, somebody who gets really good at blues guitar or somebody who gets really good at like finger chicken picking country style guitar. I mean, there's different genres of guitar and shred and, you know, technical stuff is one of them. And there's a lot of discipline and a lot of skill that goes into learning any of those genres. I mean, there's a lot of crossover. If you're good at one, you can probably pick up another one pretty quickly because a lot of the technique covers and, um, traverses over, meaning they're, you know, if you know how to sweep pick, you know how to sweep pick. If you know how to finger pick, you know how to finger pick is basically what I'm saying. And then it's just an issue of stylistically and creatively learning the genre. So a lot of people like to talk shit because it's guitar and guitar is a very macho instrument. It's definitely like, oh, well, fuck every guitar genre, but the one that I'm in because, you know, jazz guys are sloppy, but shredders, they just jack off and they have no feel and blues guys have no technique. You know what I mean? So there's, there's, there's crits of everything. So the point is there's a lot of amazing guitar out there and quit being dickheads, guitar players. Yeah. Well, I feel like one of the most misunderstood things about shredding on guitar is the level of commitment required. I, I consider it... Oh my God, I could go... Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like being an Olympic athlete on your instrument. I used to practice 12 hours a day, literally every fucking day to a metronome and just sit there and drill and drill and drill Yeah, for years. It's what it takes if you want to play that style. Yeah, I, I believe it because I kind of did the same thing for a little while as well. I feel like also in lots of ways, it's something that has been lost a bit 
in the current day. Now, that seems counterintuitive. Yeah, the guitar players now, I'll let me echo that, are definitely not as good as they were. Like, when I was growing up, dude, you had guys like Ingve and Paul Gilbert and Jason Becker and Sean Lane, and, you know, these guys were doing their, their stuff live. Like, Ingve recorded his first record in, like, two days, and now it's like it's all just punched in and cut together, and, like, you know, people, kids will be like, oh, that's sick, and I'm like, dude, he can't even fucking play it. No, yeah, it takes so much talent and skill to actually be able to pull off the type of stuff that we're used to hearing. It took guys it, their half of their whole fucking life to even get to that point. And now... Now they just fake it. Yeah, computers allow you to fake it and, and allow you to get there faster and look look like a god and not actually be one. If you want to see a, a shred guitar player, go watch Jason Becker at age 17. <laughs> yeah. Go do like his clinics and play like Serenia or, you know what I mean? And then go watch your favorite guitar hero on YouTube who like <laughs> is modern and listen to his cut and paste guitars and then smile and laugh. Or go watch Paul Gilbert, Intense Rock One or Sean Lane or, you know, I mean, there's some legit dudes now like Rusty Cooley is fucking amazing. Well, it's going to be cool to bring on a, an actual good guitarist, somebody who is still capable of pulling off that kind of stuff and existing in the modern age in the modern day uh you know in the limelight so hey guys get me all fired up <laughs> let's bring him on let's let's talk to him so how do you say how do you say your name and i'm sorry for asking because you know uh it's swedes it's pad <laughs> pad well uh not too bad <laughs> i at least got the rolled r i speak russian so it's probably yeah. not too far off I think it's closest to uh, a pear of something like pear, like the fruit. Yeah, okay. Not not like cool. not not the fruit. <laughs> a pair of things, you know. It's, oh, okay, it's, okay. It's hard. Okay, two. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on the show and talking with us. We're talking about guitars this month, and and I think you uh, are pretty knowledgeable on the subject, if I'm not mistaken. I've been listening to your playing for years and years. And uh, I know that you record yourself, plus you balance that with being really good at guitar. So we just wanted to talk to you about your playing and how you developed it, how you get ready for the studio, you know. Sure. So just out of curiosity, how long have you been playing? Uh, I've been playing for, uh, I, I started playing 31 years ago. Wow. So you've been at it a little while? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. That's awesome. How many hours a day do you practice now as opposed to when you were first really getting into it? When I was in my late teens, when I practiced the most, I could practice all day long, more or less. Like I started playing the first thing I did in the morning. I played through the entire day. I, I mean, I even practiced when I ate, like when I ate breakfast, I ate with one hand and did the exercises with the other hand. So I was really, uh, really into it. But nowadays I... For long, long periods of time, I barely play. What What do you define as long periods of time? Weeks or, or months. Wow. Depends. I mean, I I mean, I play every now and then, but it's not like I play guitar f for hours a day. Do you feel like there comes a point where you've played an instrument long enough to where you don't need to practice as much as you used to? Yeah, in a in a way, I I guess. I mean. I don't have to keep practicing scales or the things that are knowledge doesn't, you know, disappear. But it's more like the motor skills get a little bit rusty if I don't play for a while. But it comes back pretty fast. And one reason why, why I don't play that much nowadays is because I, I had a, a period of uh, 
uh, well, a little bit over four years when I didn't play guitar at all because I injured myself from over-practicing. Wow. I've done that too. Joel, didn't you do that too? Yes. Well, I got a combination of editing drums, so I have carpal tunnel in my right wrist. And after, you know, years of shredding guitar on my left side, I have a little bit of tendonitis. So as soon as I start firing up the sweep arpeggios and speed picking, my left arm starts burning. Uh, so I have to take it easy now. And I don't, also don't have time because I literally live in the studio and have no time for anything else. So I really don't get to play guitar too much anymore. And it's unfortunate because when I was a kid, that was all I did. Oh, same here. Actually, I feel like when I was maybe 19 or 20, I changed my focus from playing guitar to writing music. And it was because I hurt myself practicing too much. And I felt like I was physically limited, like I couldn't achieve the technical level I wanted to because anytime I would start to get close, my injury would flare up. So one day I was just like, you know, this is dumb. I'm going to be one of those guys that keeps on trying for something that's not physically possible because of this injury. What else can I do with music that will get a good result and decided to focus on writing because I think writing and playing are two completely different skills, which I'm sure that you guys will agree with on that. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Are you still actively playing in, in a band right now or with any groups or anything? Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. I've, I'm uh, active with, with Scar Symmetry, which is my main band. And also I'm in a band called Kaipa. It's a progressive rock band. I do a lot of guest solos for bands. and So when you're working on a guest solo, how long does it normally take you to come up with one? I don't know, an hour or two. That's it? <laughs> Damn. Yeah, it depends a little bit on what the solo part is like. I did a, a solo for Hannes Grossman from used to play with Obscura, yeah. the drummer, for his solo album. And that solo part was so weird because it was like five completely different genres of music. So it was like 32 bars of something like jazz fusion yeah, That's awesome. And another n next part was something else. And, and, and that took quite a bit of thinking to get my head around. So when you have to tie together a bunch of different styles like that, is there any process you use for analyzing the music or for wrapping your head around it? The most important thing in a scenario like that is to make the transitions in between the, the different parts to make them sound smooth, you know, so to help the, the music to not like switch style in my playing when the background changes, you know, so, so try to make it, it sounds like the solo is the same piece of music, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I actually think that that's one of the hardest things to do when writing a solo, that and ending it well. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Per, before you came on, we were kind of talking a little bit about guitar players now, how a lot of lead guitar is recorded, and I'm an old school shredder, and I've been playing 20 years, not 32, but um, I remember the 80s and the great guitar players like Paul Gilbert and Sean Lane and Jason Becker, and a lot of those solos were recorded without a lot of punch-ins. I mean, there's, you can hear it, and now all these guitar players sit down and record their n notes like MIDI, 
Like I'll use Dragon Force as an example. It doesn't even sound human. It's kind of a shame because when I was learning how to play guitar, I actually had to learn how to play guitar. And now with digital editing, you can make crazy solos and not be able to play them. So how do you go about recording your guitar solos when you're recording them? Well, I, I don't, you know, edit stuff together note by note, <laughs> that's for sure. But uh, I, I do I do a lot of punch-ins and I actually, I write my solo at the same time when I record it. And usually the way I do it is I play the the track over and over and I jam to it while recording and if I end up playing something nice I will stop the recording and and see if I can if I can use it if it's played good enough I'll keep it if not I'll try to play it one more time but play it better and usually you know I, I just keep a phrase or something and when I have something recorded I start building from that if I have an intro for the solo like if the first lick, then I'll try to come up with the next lick. And a lot of it is just like it's improvised, even though I improvise like short bits and then uh, edit stuff together. Yeah, that's awesome. I do it exactly the same way when writing solos. I like to take a section of music and loop it, then maybe get the first part. And like you said, put it together and then go on to the next. And then after you have everything recorded, you try to make a smooth, cohesive solo that transitions and feels and like a performance out of it. And it's very challenging, I think, to record uh, a solo and write it, especially when it's very technical. I think it's challenging, but I think that there's a huge payoff to writing and performing it at the same time, because that's when the idea is the most fresh. It'll never be as fresh as when you first wrote it. You know, there's a lot of magic in lead guitar that I feel needs to be captured, just like with vocals. It needs to be captured in order for the solo to truly capture the listener. So yeah. I think there's a huge benefit to practicing and getting good enough at guitar to where you can do that in the first place. I also think that something about solos that get worked on over a long period of time sometimes they tend to lose their cohesion because you know if you work on say one part for one week and then the next part for another week and then don't think about it for a few weeks and then work on another part there's a high likelihood that the parts will not fit together musically yeah i've experienced this many many times so the best guitar players i've recorded tend to write the stuff right there on the spot. Yeah, definitely. I'll echo that. Do you need to warm up? No, I usually don't warm up that much. If it's before a show or something, I play for a bit uh, just to loosen up. But when I'm in the studio, I just start playing. One of the best musicians I ever met actually is a drummer who went to the same school I went to and dropped out. He's way older than me. He's like my dad's age. He started playing for Aretha Franklin actually, and then quit the music industry and started a grocery store. That's why you've never heard of him, but fucking amazing <laughs> drummer. And he always said about practicing that he did enough practicing as a kid to where now all he has to do is visualize. So he no longer needs to practice. Now he can just visualize it and create it. I, I think it takes a really long time to get to that point anyways. But that that's basically often what, what I do. Because when I had those four years when I didn't play guitar at all, I still like thought about music. And anytime I heard a song on the radio, I, I sort of envisioned myself playing a solo 
on top of the music. I always have melodies and rhythms and stuff going on in my head for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why. We're all cursed with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point for guitar players because I use myself as an example. Like I probably haven't gotten, because I haven't played very much or practiced, I probably haven't gotten technically any better, if not worse, because I'm rusty, but you never really lose your chops. But I've definitely in my lapse of guitar due to studio recording and running businesses, um, I've definitely gotten much better creatively on guitar and much better at songwriting because I'm always immersed in those different elements. So when I do pick up a guitar, it's much easier for me to write a solo in a different genre than I could have maybe 10 years ago when I practiced all day. But my exposure to different things was more limited because all I did is run scales and you know make sure that things were coming out cleanly and quickly. Mm-hmm. That's something huge. You know, I don't want to get redundant here, but I think that's one of the best things you can possibly do to develop your lead guitar playing or your writing skills is develop the mental game. I've seen it over and over again. For instance, one of my roommates when I was back in school was one of the most talented people I've ever met, one of the best musicians I've ever met, and he never practiced, ever. And I would ask him, how do you possibly... How do you learn music so fast? Like he could learn stuff on the spot, perform it on the spot, record it on the spot. It's like, how do you do this? What is going on? Are you sneaking in practice when we're not looking or something? (laughs) I said, no, all I have to do is think about it. Um, If you actually try to hear it and then envision yourself playing it while you're hearing it, it's as good as practicing it in real life. So I took that lesson and I went and I talked to some classical soloists that I knew through my dad who would have to learn like, you know, a 45 minute Beethoven piece and play it in front of a you know crowd of 3000 people and an orchestra and they would say the same thing. The way that you really know that you know a piece is if you can imagine yourself playing it from start to finish and not fuck up. Yes. Yeah, cuz I guess in order to be able to imagine every single part being played then you you have to know exactly how the part goes and how to play it and and so if you get to a point in the imagination where you're like I'm not sure what's being played here then of course that's where you're going to fuck up. <laughs> yeah, but that <laughs> it doesn't seem that simple in real life like Yeah, yeah. It's it's one of those super super simple things about mastering an instrument that I think almost anybody can do but they don't do it because it's easy to get caught up in the actual physical act of playing. Um, and hearing yourself and getting tripped up by your own insecurities on the instrument. But if you can actually close your eyes and see yourself playing everything and hear it in your head and like feel it, you'll do a better job. I kind of wanted to talk about recording guitar because I had an interesting thought, and this doesn't really come from any of our viewer questions, at least I don't think it does. But um, I would imagine that someone who doesn't totally understand guitar especially when it comes to lead guitar, they probably would have a little bit of problem recording it and properly producing it. So I guess the question is, like, what is it that you can do if you're someone who doesn't quite understand solo guitar and intricate parts? What is it that someone can do to record that and to properly produce it? Because I'm, I'm thinking, like... You know, you might hear something that a lead guitar player plays, and it might be this amazing thing to your ears, but 
when you, if you don't really understand what's actually going on in the piece, there could be several issues with it. There could be several parts that don't make sense, transitions that are weird, notes that aren't in the key, things like that. Like, I wonder if there's any advice we could give to people who are lost when it comes to doing that. Well, if you don't understand the instrument, like, say, a non-guitar player or someone who's not very good at guitar, is there any advice you would give them on being able to achieve stuff that's far beyond their level? If you are in the scenario, like, let's say you're in the studio today and you're recording this crazy solo that you wrote, but the producer has no clue what you're doing. He doesn't understand the part. He's not a guitar player. What would you want him to do to put you in the flow state of being able to accomplish the part? You want to get the part perfectly performed and you want to get it done. What can that person do for you to make it easier to get it to happen? He could go and put on a a cup of coffee for me (laughs) 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 and move away from the producer's chair. (laughs) I was just thinking the same thing. It was probably just get out of the way. Well, let me approach this from a different angle. As a producer, I think it's important to learn the fundamentals of every instrument. Like I don't play drums, but I can write drums and I understand them and I know what all the techniques are called. So if you don't know how to play guitar, especially lead guitar, it's probably worth it to look up some basic instructional videos. You don't need to play the instrument. You just need to watch somebody do it right. For example, what is sweep picking? How to sweep pick. What is alternate picking? How to, you know, alternate pick. What's palm muting, fret tapping, and just watch a few people perform those techniques to get it in your ear what it sounds like by listening to a master of the instrument. And then listen to some really bad people attempt it, and then compare the differences. And then you'll at least have a basic understanding. Yeah, if you want to check out a really great instructional video, actually, Paris got one that you sent me, which is phenomenal. Oh, thank you. I actually agree with what Joel said. The lead guitar player in my band, Emil Wurstler, who's one of the best guitar players as well in the genre. Yeah, I I love Emil. Dude, he's so good. It's scary how good he is. But one of the things that he always told me that he did was go on YouTube and look up his favorite guitar players and pay attention to how they hold the guitar and what they're physically doing when they create a certain kind of part. So, you know, know, if you want to sound like Zach Wild when you're doing vibrato, then take a look at how Zach Wild actually holds the guitar when he's getting that wild, sorry, when he's getting that wild vibrato. <laughs> like it's not, it's not, yeah, no pun intended. It's not coming from him sitting down properly with the guitar. It's coming because of the way that he anchors his leg on the monitor, the way that he holds the guitar up to give himself as much leverage as possible on the instrument. So by actually analyzing how some of these great guys produce their techniques or their tones, you'll skip a lot of the fucking around in the practice room to try to get to a result. Like you'll save yourself a lot of time. Cause I know that Emil plays a lot of guitar, but he hates practicing. That's one of the ways he got around having to figure everything out from the start. One of the things that we talk about on this show a lot is how the guitar itself as an instrument is usually and still largely a 
terrible design because they don't stay in tune, they warp, etc., etc. I'm just curious because you do have a uh, signature guitar, right? Yeah. That you just built with uh, Strandberg. Yeah. So I'm curious, was there any specific design elements or anything that you went over when you approached the build? Yeah, I, I wanted the True Temperament fretboard, which you might have heard of. Yeah. Yeah. So let's say someone who's never heard of a True Temperament fretboard, explain that to them. It's a way to compensate for some of the, the flaws in the guitar design. I guess what uh, the flaw is that the positioning of the of the frets on a fretboard is like a theoretical construction. You know, you split the octave in 12 notes and then you put the frets accordingly. But that doesn't work because you have to compensate for the thickness of the strings and the action of the strings. And if the strings are wound or plain, so true temperament is a way to compensate for that which makes the frets all squiggly wiggly. <laughs> I remember seeing when Steve Vai came out with his years ago and just thinking that it was insane. Like, is it hard to get comfortable playing on the True Temperament frets? I mean, it, it looks kind of mind-boggling at first, but when I started playing, I, I, as long as I don't look at the fretboard, I can't even feel that it's there. Yeah, because I guess you don't really feel the frets when you're playing a normal guitar. It's not, you know, you're just focused on the string and the position. Yeah, exactly. Even when you when you do vibrato and you bend, uh, you can't really tell that there's a difference. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. And if you look at a True Temperament fretboard, the biggest difference is at the first fret in between the G and the B strings. You can see that there's a big dent there. But the rest of the frets aren't that you know, crooked. And at the first fret, you rarely do a lot of big bends, unless you're Steve Ray Vaughan. <laughs> <laughs> On a scale of 1 to 10, uh, 10 being most effective, how effective is a true temperament fret system? Is I mean, is it big improvement or what? I think it's a huge improvement. I mean, it still also comes down to, you know, how hard you hit the strings with your pick, the touch you have with your the pressure. left hand. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not going to be... Like 100%, but it's very, very close. Have you ever tried an Evertune bridge? Uh, yeah. What do you think of those? It's also a cool invention, I think. And uh, if you get True Temperament and Evertune, then basically you have a you have a, a keyboard. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, it's like a guitar synthesizer. That's awesome. I'm, well, maybe it's not awesome. I don't know. <laughs> well, how can you possibly play out a tune if you have both of those things without detuning the guitar physically? I've heard i'm not that experienced with evertune i've just heard that you do have to pay a price with your tone for using an evertune like i've heard that they hurt the sustain a little bit they definitely hurt the tone a little have you experienced that uh, no i i haven't messed around with it that much i've only heard that a couple times okay i don't own a guitar with evertune does the true temperament fretboard mess with the tone at all or do you think it's neutral tone-wise? I think it's neutral. Some people claim that you can get a little bit more sustain from playing chords or whatever from sympathetic... Uh, sympathetic vibrations? Yeah, exactly. I think it sounds more or less exactly as a regular fretboard. Just more in tune. Okay. Do you play scalped frets? Uh, no. I got the two uh, Steve I guitars, the, the gems. Mm -hmm. And they have the upper four or five frets are scalloped, but... 
up there, the, the, the distance in between the frets is so small that you can't really tell that it's scalloped. Joel, have you ever played a scallop? Yeah, I had a Ibanez RG570 where I had them scallop out the very top notes just so I could get under the string because there wasn't a... Um, it was a bolt-on neck and not like a, a through neck design or, um, but it had like a huge back. So like I had to reach my hand over and down instead of being able to slide my hand up to comfortably get into those frets. So I scalloped them so I could get at that awkward angle, my finger under the string to do the high fret bends. Cause it was a 24 fret guitar. So that was the only time I really did that. I mean, I've played like some of the Ingve model guitars and it's definitely a different feel if you're not used to it, but I definitely, there was a value for the guitar that I had because it was very hard to access those frets. Like the guitar played beautifully, but then they had this stupid neck design that didn't allow you to actually get up there and do the crazy stuff you want to do. Man, I can't handle scallop frets. They're different. I just don't understand how you can play chords on them very well. They rule for vibrato. Well, if you have a scallop fretboard, you're probably a lead guitar player and you don't have time to play chords. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have played on Ingve's uh, guitars and I can't do it. Like, it's every single fret scalloped. I just don't understand how you can play so lightly and maintain accuracy while not pulling things out of tune. It kind of blows my mind. You might need a heavier string gauge or I don't know. I, I haven't had enough experience on them to really know them intimately. I always just liked my Ibanez guitars and that's what I stuck with most of the time. So Pear, a question for you, since obviously if you went through the trouble of getting a true temperament fretboard, intonation is a big deal to you. Is there Anything else that you do like with your hands or any tuning tricks that you use for making sure that your leads are in perfect tune? I've used auto-tune a few times in the studio, but not, nothing playing-wise, except for not playing way too hard or, or having too much pressure with my left hand. And, and do you play on a floating bridge? No, it's a fixed bridge on my, on my Strandberg. Yeah. But we're, we're going to do a, a version of it with a floating bridge as well. So my older guitars, they are with floating bridges, like my gems and the guitars that I played previously. And uh, Man, those are so hard to keep in tune. Yeah, it's, it's, it's <laughs> terrible. So let's talk about auto-tuning guitars for a second. I feel like some people hate that idea, but, you know, I feel like it's like any other technique sometimes it's necessary because maybe your guitar is in tune but the rest of the music isn't in tune or you have a great take and you miss a bend yes and you don't want to lose the take and the bend is just slightly flat or you overshot it yeah that's and that's where i use it sometimes exactly and also with my non-true temperament guitars it can really bother me when the intonation is off that's basically why i've used autotune on the occasional part. I don't think it's a it's a big deal. It's not like I played out of tune. It's just like nudging things a little bit into the right direction. It's 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 not different from, you know, uh, taking out 4K from the symbols because they were a little bit too harsh or something. <laughs> it's not like changing the performance. It's different if you have vocals that are if there's a guy who can't really sing and you put autotune yeah. on it, you know what I mean? Yeah, I equate it to doing another take. It's like punching in on a drum part or, you know, it's there as a tool. Again, the classic 
situation is you're doing a solo. You have an awesome take on an improvised part that's really inspired, but you have one or two bends that are a little bit out of tune and it, you just tune up the DIs and reamp it. And there you go. You have the solo that you want. I feel like also, and we've talked about this before, the standards of of what's acceptable to the listening audience have changed. You know, in the 1970s, you could have lead guitar solos where a guy is bending out of tune and there's no way to really fix it and it's okay, you know. But nowadays, basically the listening public has evolved to the point where I don't think you can get away with out of tune bends and uh, really not turn off your audience. I should show you some of my guitar player hate email from back in the day when I used to run insaneguitar.com. <laughs> I have so many emails like, dude, your bend is out of tune on this solo. You suck. <laughs> you should quit. Fuck you. <laughs> that people were people were sending you that? Yeah, like you miss one bend and you put a recording online and then you get 50 emails about it that are very angry. I mean, this, <laughs> guitar players are an interesting breed. I don't get where the anger comes from. Probably lack of sex and interaction with women because you're too busy practicing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that as far as guitar goes, hitting super out of tune bends is one of the most offensive noises you can make, but I don't understand where the hate comes from. They weren't super out of tune bends. They were just slightly, you know, like you you just you do a real performance and you kind of just like, you know, you're just a little flat on one or two or you know what I mean? It's just whatever. People are just bastards. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely hate autotune guitar, but I also feel like there's, at least to my ears, there's a certain amount of it that is kind of acceptable, but, you know, I'm a little older than some people. But for instance, one of the sounds that I like that a lot of people don't like, and I've had arguments with people about this, is when you have quadded guitars, for instance, sometimes I like the chorusing between different takes. As long as it doesn't sound out of tune, as long as it's still tastefully in tune, it doesn't bother me very much. It all depends on the goal. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, if it sounds like that cool classic rock sound, then it doesn't bother me. But for a modern metal production, I don't think you can really get away with that kind of stuff. And like we've been discussing, uh, guitars are not perfect instruments and guitar players are not perfect machines. So sometimes you need to use autotune to uh, fix stuff. When you guys are autotuning guitars or melodyning them, are there any settings that you go to, I guess? It depends on what's been playing. If it's a fast run, you have to have fast settings. And if it's a slow bend... I mean, if you, if you even can use autotune for a slow bend, you have to have the settings really slow. So Yeah. Because if you can pick up that you're using autotune on a guitar, that's not cool. That's, that's very annoying. Yeah, definitely. I prefer graphical block-based grid tuners versus like lines. I'll give you an example, like stock very audio and Cubase or Melodyne versus autotune for tuning guitars, because you can take the whole bend for example and move the block up and center the part that you want to be in tune without having to draw the line and then draw the bend in to connect the bend part of the line that is say undershot on a flat bend it's less drawing and to my ear it usually sounds better so i i like the block 
type tuners instead of like the more fixed. I know Joey's like, you love the, for tuning vocals, like the lines, because a line is more in tune than a block. But for guitars, I think a block is really good for tuning bends. Yeah, I mean, I just try to have as much control over the pitch as, as possible. So I prefer it to be pretty loose in terms of, like, I, I don't like the blocks because they limit you to what your potential adjustments are so i prefer to have it you know to where i can just freely correct the pitch and change it but for guitars you know you have to understand the instrument and what and what's happening you know you're pushing down on the string and which is creating a sine wave and it doesn't really fluctuate much unless you start moving the string around and so because of that, it's going to cause you to do certain pitch correction changes. You know, you're going to need to make straight lines and stuff. But if you do it too straight, then it'll start to sound like a keyboard because then the keyboard can switch from one note to another digitally as fast as possible, whereas a guitar needs to actually, like, do it. The guitar player, like, moves his hand, so there's, like, a, a movement to the note changes. That brings up a question that I've got. Um, Pear, how important is it to you that the solos that you record can actually be played live standing up? Do you think about that when you're recording solos? I mean, I know you do a bunch of guest solos, so you'll never play these live. Um, so does it matter to you if it's realistic or do you think about that at all? Well, one time on stage, <laughs> it becomes very important. But <laughs> when I actually record, I don't think about it too much because usually when I start recording, when I start getting a, a vision of how I want it to sound, I don't care too much about whether I'm going to be able to, to play it every night on a long tour. I just want to produce the, the sound and the, the melodies that I hear. I've gotten in, into a lot of trouble sometimes. One of my favorite musicians, um, Mike Patton, I remember reading an interview with him about Mr. Bungle a long time ago. I, I know that some people may not know who they are, but they're one of the, uh, one of the weirdest, craziest live bands ever. But... He was asked whether they worry about being able to play their stuff live. And he always said that priority one is make a great record. And once you make a great record, then figure out how to play it live. I think that's a good technique, too, for just general musicianship. Like, if you want to get better, this is something I used to preach a lot when I was teaching guitar. Often in the studio, when you're writing a solo, you want to challenge yourself. At least I always did. I guess that's part of being a shredder and the shredder mentality. You know, it's like an Olympic sport, as we were saying earlier, is you always want to, like, try playing things that are really cool, like, in your head. And but you may not be able to quite execute. So you, you pull it off in the studio, you write it, you know, you edit it, and then you practice it and you learn it. And that's really a great way to get better at the craft and just art of playing whatever instrument you're doing is to literally play something out of your ability, record it, and then force yourself to have to learn how to play it because you're going to be on stage in, say, two or three months. And if you can't, you're going to look like an idiot. There's a fine line, though, I think. Oh, definitely. It has to be realistic or else you're Dragon Force. Yeah. <laughs> I remember John Petrucci saying that he always liked to try to write solos that were maybe 15% above his physical ability so that he would actually have to, you know, get better in order to be able to play them live, but it wasn't so far beyond his ability that it would be impossible. 
Yeah, that's the uh, fatal tragedy solo debacle. There was a huge thing where John Prashushri in some videos was constantly missing one of the sweeps, and it was a great controversy for like months in the guitar forums. And I'm and I'm just sitting here reading this stuff. I'm like, guys, none of you could play it, so <laughs> why are you hating on one of the best guitar players ever? <laughs> it's so ridiculous. So what if you know maybe the lights are hot? Maybe he stepped on his cable weird and he missed the sweep. You know, it's not easy to play. Oh, so it's just one video. Where- he missed a sweep? Yeah, it happened a couple times. And this was when YouTube was starting. There was some lick in the solo and fatal tragedy that's like kind of like a technical sweep where you, you're, it's like a multi position where you slide up, if I remember correctly. I mean, the, God, this is years ago. And, uh, you know, he, he had kind of had a couple rough goes that were captured on video and it started circulating in the guitar forums. And oh my God, it was like World War Three. I mean, that's just how guitar players are. They're just, it's, 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 a, it's a wiener fest. Like, I'm better than you. It's also the nature of video because, you know, it's kind of the luck of the draw. Because say you take a guitar player like that over the course of a 30-day tour. And I guarantee you that 20 of the shows, they're going to play it pretty good. Five of the shows, they're going to play it amazing. And then five of the shows, they're going to play it terrible. Yeah, like maybe he didn't sleep the night before. He's sick. Exactly. Or he, like I said, he stepped on his cable and lost his balance, or he's under a hot light, or he's just having an off night. You know what I mean? There's a million factors that can cause you to whiff something on stage. Yeah, one of the best examples of how this stuff can get taken way out of context is the Betcha Can't Play This video series by Guitar World, because I don't know if you guys have noticed, but some of those videos are terrible. Oh my God, yeah. And they're by guitar players that are not terrible. Like, you get guys that are really, really great, and then you watch their Betcha Can't Play This, and you would think that they're total beginners. And it doesn't make sense, because you've heard them on recordings, you've seen them live, and you know they're really good, or you play in a band with them, or whatever. You know they're great guitar players, and you see this video, and it's like, what happened? (laughs) And uh, you realize that, you know, if you get five takes of a solo, one of them is going to suck. And if that's the one that goes up on YouTube, that's what everybody knows you by. And it doesn't matter how good the takes are that uh, nobody ever heard. 20,000 negative comments later, dislikes, and 10 pages of hate mail. And, you know, that's what happens. (laughs) I try not to judge too harshly based on what I see online. But still, you know, that thing about John Petrucci not being able to play those sweeps in that one spot. I know a few producers whose opinion on recording solos is whether it's realistic or not, is not their problem. Yeah, you know, I, that's how I that's how I feel about it. True. It's like mm-hmm. I can't be worrying about that whole thing and also worry about how it sounds and also worry about the editing and you hired me to make it sound good. So that's what I'm focused on. That's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. The producer doesn't have a guitar ego, the pride and the ego and all the, (laughs) the drama that goes on with that. And behind that is impossible to deal with on top of the production and the mixing and the sound and the sonics and the character. So I've had some guitar players who want to make it so realistic that they will, insist on playing through their pedal board and playing through all the pedal changes which by I haven't really allowed unless it's like a whammy pedal or something like that but I've had arguments with guitar players about that and it's like look look it, wow. look that's <laughs> it's not going to work like 
you're going to mess up and it's going to sound terrible. And it's not my problem if you can't play it live. Go practice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of that, I I was curious. Do you prefer to record yourself or do you like to have someone else record you when you're playing guitar? I absolutely prefer to record myself. Especially if it's stuff that is already written, like rhythm guitars and stuff like that. I I don't mind having someone else, uh, you know, produce or be the engineer. But when I'm creating stuff, like when I'm writing my solos, uh, I really like to be in full control myself. That's awesome, because that that allows you to be more creative and properly get your ideas out faster, doesn't it? Yeah, and I like to press the record button myself and decide myself when I'm going to do something, uh, right? like do another take or so. You know, I want to bring up a comparison, because we just spoke to uh, Kurt Ballou, um producer and guitar player from Converge, who I would say is about as polar opposite to how you play as possible. He started recording for like the same types of reasons, which is when someone else would try to record him, they wouldn't understand what he was trying to do or wouldn't be thinking fast enough or be on the same page. So he just learned how to do it himself so that he could have the freedom to actually express himself the way he needed to on the instrument. I got to say, though, that for me personally, I prefer somebody else recording me, but that depends on how good they are. Like, for instance, if you have a brilliant dude like Jason Sukoff punching you in, then I'm cool with it, Like because I know that his musical brain is faster than my musical brain, so he's going to be on top of everything I'm trying to do. But if I'm recording with someone, if someone's punching me in that's slower than me musically, I can't handle it. I go crazy. I've had it both ways. I think that the the key is that if the engineer producer is really good at music and can understand what you're doing, it's actually kind of freeing to have somebody else punch you in because all you have to focus on is playing. I feel like sometimes if to focus on editing myself or recording myself, it makes me play worse. For, for me, it's, it's also a matter of uh, if you're working with a producer and then he's on the clock. True. You're basically, you're in the studio for eight hours and you're recording solos. And then I have to just, you know, keep pouring out solos. But if I record at my own place and I can, can do it whenever I want, I, I can record when I'm in, in my best mood. Yeah, and that will change the outcome of the performances and the parts and ultimately it can produce better results. Yeah, so that that's also very important for me. Yeah, yeah. I always liked recording by myself lead guitar. I feel like lead guitar is just a very intimate thing in writing solos and I hate like listening to somebody else's opinion when I'm writing it because I'm so in the zone. I don't want to sit there and have my singer come in and be like, dude, that sounded good. And like, you dipshit, I missed like 20 notes. That sounded like shit. Get out of here. So it was always very difficult for me to record solos with people in the room. I just want to like be in the zone, lock the door, and then emerge with a great solo that I'm proud of mm-hmm. and not have to listen to anything and then have people listen to it and be like, all right, dude, you suck or yeah, this is okay. I, I think it just, you need to have a really great producer if you're going to have someone else do it. If you're already good at recording and you're good at guitar, the only way that it can work out favorably is if the guy recording you is really, really good. And Agreed. you know what I mean? Like, I totally understand where you guys are coming from. And I 
I agree. The only thing that I'll say is if you were working with a genius or something, you know, there could be benefit in that as well. It just depends. But I feel like that's another thing that we should touch on real quick. I think that lead guitar is probably the closest thing to vocals that you can do in music besides vocals. Same types of frequency ranges, same role in the music. It's basically like a song within a song and it takes over the lead. And so with that, it's ultra expressive and you can't just approach it the way that you would approach recording drums or recording rhythms where it's like clock in, clock out. You do need to work with the mood of the lead guitar player. And I've noticed many, many times that trying to record leads with an uninspired guitar player doesn't really work out. Sometimes they need to take a shower, take a shit, or come back the next day, get high, drink a beer, like whatever whatever it is, go running, like whatever it is they need to do. I think it's super important to try to be in tune with that kind of stuff when you're recording a guitar player, just like with a vocalist. And sometimes you're looking for the same things as... Like when you record vocals, sometimes you get a like an ending of a phrase, you get a like, little bit of vibrato or something. That just makes the whole part much better. And it's the same thing with guitar. Just small details that it's really expressive. It's something that maybe on rhythm guitars you would redo as well. I think that there's a lot more nuance in lead guitar. Your brain needs to be in the mood to actually perceive those little nuances and make the right decisions. Whereas, like I was saying with rhythm guitars... A lot of those little things will make it sound worse. You know, if you're quadding guitars or doubling them, you know, yeah. might make shit sound sloppy. So, whereas rhythm guitars are very yes, no, right, wrong, binary type recording mm-hmm. process, I feel with lead guitar, there's a lot more art to it. Yeah. And so, therefore, your mood needs to be that much more in the right spot. Definitely. Well, all right, guys. I think that we're about out of time for tips and tricks today. Pear, thank you for coming on, man. Thanks for having me. This was really a lot of fun. Yeah, love talking guitar and love your playing. And thank you for sending me that video. It's phenomenal. Is there anything that you want to promote or say or push? or? I would like uh, to say to everyone that you have to check out this band called Doth because they are <laughs> awesome yeah were, they were awesome <laughs> thank and, you and they need to put out another album uh, well, one day <laughs> well thanks so much for coming on thanks man yeah thanks Pear take care guys talk to you soon alright take it easy dude the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Creative Live the world's best online classroom for creative professionals with classes on songwriting engineering mixing and mastering Go to creativelive.com slash audio to start learning now. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is also brought to you by Ernie Ball, the world's premium manufacturer of guitar strings, bass strings, and guitar accessories. Go to www.ernieball.com to learn more. To ask us questions, suggest topics, and interact, visit urmacademy.com and subscribe today.